Well, during this, this Lenten season, we're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, but we are focusing on this particular section in chapter 6 that has to do with prayer. And so would you rise with me as you're able and we'll read our passage and then we will listen to God as He speaks to us through it. This is from Matthew 6, verses 7 through 8. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I'd like us to, uh, to look at this. This is another example of what to avoid in prayer. I'd like us to look at this under three headings. I want us to look at pagan prayer or Gentile prayer, pagan prayer. Secondly, at the real God. And finally, at the Father's gift. Pagan prayer, the real God, and the Father's gift. It's our simple outline for this morning. Now, if you remember last week and in the previous section of this passage, Jesus told us not to pray like the hypocrites meaning the religious hypocrites of his day who would pray for... I'm sorry, kids are dismissed for children's church. Forget it, every time. If you have children's nursery, children's church, you're welcome to take your kids there. But Jesus was talking about the religious hypocrites of his day who liked to pray for show. They would go and they would pray on the corners, on the street, in synagogues, in the way that would attract attention to them. And Jesus says, well, they get their reward. If your goal is to impress others, that's all you're doing because God is not impressed and you're not actually praying to Him. Now, those people whom Jesus called hypocrites knew who God was, and their prayers, I would think, were probably theologically correct. I think that was part of the way of impressing others is praying in a way that really brought out Scripture and brought out the wealth of of God's relationship with Israel to impress others. However, they were not actually praying to God. So they knew about God, they had the right perception of God, but they were not praying to Him, and they're not praying from their hearts. Now that was last week's message. Now today, we're looking at this next passage, and the problem is different. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Now he's contrasting our prayers with the Gentiles' prayers. So not the religious hypocrites, not the Pharisees, but pagans, Gentiles, heathens. Now in the Jewish mindset, the world was divided into two groups of people. There were the Jewish people who had the law, they had the covenants, they had God's word, they had the temple, they were hoping for the Davidic king to come back and rule again. And then there was everybody else. And everybody else was pagan. Everybody else was, was Gentiles. And the difference was really not ethnic, because you could become a Jew by, by being baptized into the Jewish religion and become part of the Jewish community, even if you were Greek or Persian or whatever it was. The difference wasn't ethnic, it was religious. The difference was that there was a group of people that knew God, they had the revelation from God, And they could build their lives based on that. And there was another group, a very large group, that were completely ignorant of who God was and what God said. 
That's how the Jews see, saw the world in Jesus' time. And so Jesus says, you can pray like a hypocrite who knows about God, but not addressing his prayers to God. Or you can pray like a pagan who doesn't know about God. And their prayers are speculative, they're imaginative, they're, they're trying to figure out how to connect with this God that they don't know. Now, a good example from Scripture of the, the contrast between a pagan prayer and a Jewish prayer or a believer's prayer is in 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, it's a familiar story where Elijah the prophet, one of the few faithful people left in Israel at that time, challenges the prophets of Baal, so pagan prophets, idolaters, to a contest, essentially. They were both going to pray to God, and whichever God answered their prayer and sent fire from heaven on the altar, on the sacrifice, would be the God of Israel, would be worshipped in Israel. Now what's interesting, this is a fascinating passage in many ways, but I am interested in the way these two prayers, how those two prayers are different. So the, the worshipers of Baal prayed all morning, and they pleaded, O Baal, answer us. Presumably over and over again, repeating, trying to get their God's attention to the point where Elijah mocks them, says maybe he's busy, maybe he's doing something else, but you keep saying that, you keep calling his name. So they did it all morning, and then when that didn't work, they started cutting themselves with knives. They would cut themselves to the point where they would bleed. Again, why? To get their God's attention. They're saying, look how much we want to talk to you. We're willing to hurt ourselves. Look, we're bleeding here. Talk to us. Respond to us. And then in verse 29 of 1 Kings 18, there's a, a telling verse. And it says, no one answered. No one paid attention. So this is a, 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 an example of pagan type of prayer where they're trying to get their God's attention by their many words, by repetitions, by by vain repetitions, as, as the old translation says, but they can't get it. Well, simply because there is no God like Baal, and so there's nobody to answer, really. But when it was Elijah's turn to pray, now look at how he prayed. It's, it's different, and it betrays a very different understanding of who God is. And this is verses 36 through 38 in 1 Kings 18. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, Yahweh, he's using the covenant name, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now he's talking to a very specific person. And he knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows what this God is like, what his character is like. He knows how God has acted through the history of, of, of his people. And so he's calling on this God. And he says, let it be known this day, that you are God in Israel. He wants the revelation of who God is. And that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Now, in a very dramatic fashion, then the fire of the Lord falls and consumes the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust licks up the water that was in the trench, and God is proclaimed 
to be the only real God in Israel. Now, compare those two prayers. They're very different. And the difference is because they see God very differently. They have different ideas of who God is. Baal worshipers did all sorts of things to get Baal's attention. They prayed for a long time. They repeated the same phrase over and over again. They limped around the altar. They cut themselves. They bled. But Elijah prayed confident that God was listening already. You don't see any anxiety in his prayer. He's addressing a God who he knows he's there, who knows that he knows the kind of God he is, and he's talking to the real God. The prophets of Baal were trying to get their God to do what they wanted. They're trying to get him to do. So maybe if we pray hard enough, long enough, maybe if we do these things, maybe if we hurt ourselves, then he will do what we want him to do. But Elijah was doing what God wanted. You see, he said, I'm your servant. I've done all these things at your word. So Elijah's prayer is actually not testing God or manipulating God as sometimes this may be interpreted. If we just pray hard enough, then God will send fire from heaven on our sacrifice. That's not what Elijah is doing at all. This is a very particular situation where God told him to do this. And he is simply responding to God's promise to his people. And he says, this is who you are. This is what you said. I know you, and this is why I'm praying this prayer. Now, there's a difference, big difference. A certain perception of who God is and what he requires shapes our prayers. Now, Jesus says, when you pray, again, assuming that most everybody prays, when you pray, Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus is is not so much warning us against lengthy prayers or fervent prayers or repetition in prayers. I don't think that's his concern because we see that happen in Scripture. For example, Jesus himself in the garden, the prayer we looked at last week, in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying, he is repeating something three times, it says, He's praying fervently, and man, it's a long prayer, long enough that the disciples fall asleep three times. So Jesus is not against the length or the repetition or the fervency of prayer. No, no, no. What he is against is against manipulative prayer. He doesn't want us to pray like the Gentiles do, like pagans do, because they manipulate God. They pray long prayers because they think God will hear them if they pray long prayers. That God will just get tired of listening to them and give them what they want. They repeat stuff just to get God's attention. And Jesus says, that's that's not the right prayer. You shouldn't manipulate God in prayer. This is what pagans do, the Gentiles do, the worshipers of Baal do that. But they lack the knowledge of God. They don't know who they're dealing with. They think that God is a God who can be manipulated. If you cut yourself deep enough and bleed profusely enough that God will answer. They think that God is a God who who cares about how many words we say in prayer. That he can be persuaded to give us what we ask if we ask rightly. It's almost like there's some magic or, or some technique that we can use and then God will respond. 
Now, that's a pagan way of prayer. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Do not pray like pagans who don't know who God is and don't know how this relationship with God works. Now, of course, it's easy for us to say, well, clearly this applies to idol worshipers, to Baal worshipers, right? To heathens, to pagans have nothing to do with, with Christianity. And we, good Christians, we don't pray like that. But have you noticed that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the disciples? Jesus is talking to us. He's telling his disciples, he's telling us, right? Bible people, church people, Christian people, he's telling us not to pray like pagans pray. The assumption is that some of us, maybe many of us, maybe even all of us at times, pray like the Gentiles do. I think pagan prayer happens among many professing Christians. Now, the key question for us to ask is, are my prayers shaped by the knowledge of God as He revealed Himself? Are my prayers shaped by the knowledge of God as He Himself revealed Himself to me? Now, Jesus wants us to pray not like ignorant pagans, but like believers who know the real God and understand who He is based on His own words. So our prayers are not speculative. They're not imaginative. They're not magical. They're not manipulative. Our prayers are a response to who God is and what He says about Himself. Now listen to Tim Keller, who says... Without immersion in God's words, our prayers may not be merely limited and shallow, but also untethered from reality. We may be responding not to the real God, but to what we wish God and life to be like. Indeed, if left to ourselves, our hearts will tend to create a God who doesn't exist. People from Western cultures want a God who is loving and forgiving, but not holy and transcendent. Studies of the spiritual lives of young adults in Western countries reveal that their prayers, therefore, are generally devoid of both repentance and of the joy of being forgiven. Without prayer that answers the God of the Bible, we will only be talking to ourselves. And that's what, and I'm using the term pagan prayer, but it's really any other prayer. It's really anything that's not based on the revelation of God through Scripture. If it's not a response to who God says He is, ultimately it's pagan. It's our own thoughts. We're talking to ourselves. It's untethered from reality. Now, real prayer, and think about Elijah's prayer. Real prayer is, is a response to who God really is. He says, the Lord... Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am your servant. I have done all these things at your word. It's really important to see that, in a sense, it's reversed. The order is reversed from the pagan prayer. A pagan prays to get something from God, to, to get God to be something, to get God to do something, to reveal himself. We pray in response to his revelation, based on who he is and who he revealed himself to us. Pagan prayer imagines God as we would like him to be. 
That's our idea of God, our dream of what we want him to be. And so we try to manipulate him into doing what we want him to do for us. Now, when Keller, in this quote I, I just mentioned, when he talks about the idea of, of God that's prevalent in Western cultures, he's basing his assessment on the research of, of certain scholars like Christian Smith, for example, who in 2005 coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, I've probably mentioned it in the past. I think every evangelical preacher has referred to this study in the last several years just because it's so revealing. And, and this, this term, moralistic therapeutic deism, simply describes, according to these sociologists, it describes the kind of religion that a lot of American teenagers and young adults are embracing. Now, it's not a church. It's not a movement, there's no website, there's no creed, no. But based on the research, there are certain beliefs that have become so normal to young adults, specifically in America, but also in other Western countries, that uh, it's become sort of a, a quasi-religion. It, be it became a worldview. Now, let me explain what, what Christian Smith means by that. He discovered that most young people American teenagers actually prayed quite frequently. 40% of them prayed every day, they said. So the problem isn't so much that they're not praying, and the problem isn't so much that they don't, they don't belong or don't associate with Christian churches. Many of them belong to Christian churches, whether it's evangelical or Catholic or mainline Protestant. There's a lot of Christian influence of some sort in their lives. But their perception of God was not really Christian. Moralistic therapeutic deism sees God as a distant God. That's the deism part of it. Deism just is, is an understanding that God exists, but he's just not involved with me personally. So they, they would say that God exists, but he's not really here. He's not really involved in my life on a day-to-day -day basis. This distant God wants people to lead good lives. He's concerned about us being nice people, kind people, fair people. And then he rewards us with such benefits, such therapeutic benefits as self-esteem, personal happiness, inner peace, those kinds of things. And so prayer is very much part of this worldview and, like I said, practiced by many. But it's a tool to get a distant God to help solve a problem threatening the person's happiness. Now, if you see God in this way, as a distant God who is concerned about us living rightly and rewards us with therapeutic benefits like self-esteem, if God is this way, then our prayers will be shaped by that. And I say then they become pagan prayers because our conception of God is not Christian, it's more pagan. And so when we pray to him, as many, apparently many teenager, teenagers do, when they pray, they see God differently and their prayers are different as well. So if God is distant, there's no adoration or praise or wonder in prayer. You see? He's not close enough to know him. He's not close enough to rejoice in his presence. If the relationship with God is largely transactional, in other words, our good behavior is rewarded with his peace and happiness. There's really no repentance or, or confession in prayer. 
if God is not holy, well, well, there's really no worship. And so while many people that we would classify as part of that moralistic therapeutic deism worldview profess to be Christians, many of them do, their prayers are more pagan than Christian. And so what we did this morning, for example, we're doing during Lent every Sunday. We have a prayer of confession, and we have a, a prayer where we rejoice that God has forgiven us in Christ. Prayers are, those prayers are informed by Scripture, and if you're familiar with Scripture, you will see that most of them come from Scripture. So we're really responding to God's revelation, but we are confessing our sins. We're coming as people who know God is near and God knows our hearts. And we need to acknowledge before Him and each other that we are sinful. We don't want to be hypocrites and pretend that we're not sinful, so we confess it publicly. Instead of confessing our piety publicly, we confess our sins publicly. And then we receive the assurance of pardon, which is God saying, you are forgiven in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. And there's joy, there's wonder, there's adoration, there's worship because of that. But none of these things are actually possible if we think that God is distant, if he think he's only concerned with our behavior, and if we think that the best benefit he can give us is us feeling good about ourselves. Well, I'm certainly not going to confess my sins if that's what I want. Now, this is a, a revealing study, I think, to show us that even in many Christian churches and Christian circles, our prayers are more pagan than Christian. And even in, in, in circles where the Bible is there, it's in some way present, it doesn't mean the Bible actually makes its way into our hearts. It doesn't actually mean that we have the right perception of God, even if we identify as Christians. And Jesus says, don't pray like pagans. Don't pray in a way that distorts who God is. Pray on the basis of who God really is. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we are his disciples, we are gathered here to worship Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, are our prayers more pagan or Christian? Do we try to get God's, att God's attention in prayer, assuming that God is somewhere busy doing more important things and he's a distant God, he needs to be convinced to come closer to us and to listen to us? Do we pray only when something threatens our happiness. That's when we go to God. When we encounter a problem, there's a barrier to our fulfillment, then we go to Him because we want Him to fix it. Then we summon this distant God to come and use His power to make us happy. Do you see your relationship with God as largely transactional, give and take, I have my quiet times, you bless me. I behave, you give me peace. Is it possible that we, professing Christians, often pray like pagans? When we think that better, longer, more fervent prayers result in more favorable responses from God. So ultimately, I am in control of God because if I know how to pray, if I know how to use my words, if I know how to use my time, if I need you know, to, use how my, to use my emotions, then God will do what I ask him to do. That's pagan. That's not Christian. Jesus says, don't pray like the Gentiles do. Don't do that. Don't manipulate God. 
Don't see God as something that he's not. You need to see the real God as he is. And so let's look at who this real God is. That's the alternative. We can avoid falling into pagan prayer by simply perceiving God as he really is. And the question is, where can we learn about this God? The obvious answer is the Bible. That's the revealed word of God. God actually tells us what he is like. And in our passage, specifically here, Jesus is telling us what God is like. So Jesus says, don't pray like pagans do, but pray like this. See God like this, as a father who already knows your needs before you ask him. So on the one hand, Jesus Jesus condemns a false perception of God that causes these kinds of pagan prayers. On the other hand, he gives us the right perception of God to fuel our prayers. Jesus says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, pagans see God as someone who can be used to help us with our needs. But Jesus says, God is our Father who knows and cares already about our needs. Pagans think that God needs to be made aware of our needs. We need to tell him, otherwise he doesn't know. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. They want to be heard, and so they pray in a way that they will be heard. But Jesus says, our Father already knows what we need before we ask Him. So when we pray, it's really not passing on information to Him. It's not trying to explain what we're really going through. He already understands. He knows. Pagans think that God needs to be convinced to listen to us. We need to persuade Him to listen to us. But Jesus says that we already have His full attention. Do you see how the right view of God as our Father who knows and cares produces totally different prayers? And this is the whole passage on prayer here, the chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has not given us techniques. He's not given us rules. He's not given us laws. He's given us the right understanding of who God is. He's teaching us again and again to to put our, what we do, our behavior, our almsgiving, our fasting, our prayer, everything else he's talked about, to put that in relationship to who God is and simply be consistent with his revelation to us. Jesus says that our relationship with God is not transactional. We're not making deals. We're not giving him something so we can take something from him. That's not what it is. It's familial, meaning we're family. God is our family. He's our father and we're his children. We're not business associates with him. We're not partners. We're not co-workers. That's not that kind of relationship that we have with him. Talking to a family member is different from talking to a boss or a co-worker. The real God, Jesus says, is our father. And in the section of Jesus' teaching on prayer, This is undoubtedly the main emphasis, that God is our Father. Eight times, Jesus refers to God as Father. Now, he's addressing different issues, but the solution seems to be the same every time. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray like this, our Father in heaven. Jesus constantly is pushing us to consider God differently from what we are used to consider him as. He understands that all of us fall back on the pagan understanding of God, somebody we could manipulate, somebody who is distant, somebody who is only concerned about certain things. 
And he says, no, 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 he's a father to you. And because he's a father to you, you pray like you would pray to your father. You treat him, you obey him like you would obey your father. Now, how many of our prayers would have been totally different if we began by pausing and thinking of God as our Father. Imagine that. When you rush into prayer in the morning, spend 10 seconds just considering that He's your Father. And then you will see how the rest of your prayer time is going to be very different from what you set out to do. Because we naturally default to the pagan understanding of God and the pagan idea of prayer. Not only is our relationship with God familial, we're family, it's also based on grace. Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, God is already intimately involved in your life before you even approach him. That's grace. He's already working before you're working. He's already approached you. He's already involved with you before you are involved with him. He already loves you. He already cares for you. He already is already taking care of your needs. He's already committed to you. God is not waiting for you to write a carefully worded and meticulously researched paper to prove to him that this is actually what you need. He's not waiting for that. He already knows what you need, right? He's already working on that. He's already providing. He's already intimately involved in your life. And he's already agreed to give you whatever you need. Now, we know, I hope, I hope all of us know, Bible church people, right? People of the gospel, people of grace, I hope all of us know that this is how conversion works. When you come to Christ for the first time, you don't come with anything, right? You don't come and make your case and you say, God, you have to forgive me. Yes, I am a sinner, but look how much good there is in my life. Look how sincere I am in my repentance. Look how carefully I have confessed every sin. And after all, I'm not that bad. You should forgive me. You must forgive me. No, we don't do that. True conversion happens when we come empty-handed to him. We come with nothing and we say, I literally have nothing to bring to the table. And there's no negotiation here. In other words, we come as little children with childlike faith knowing that our Father can do anything. That's a child's faith, right? They grow out of it, but they begin thinking their parents are giants. They can do anything. And they ask like that. That's, that's a Christian's first prayer. We come to God as a little child and say, I bring nothing to the table. There's nothing I can commend myself to you with, but you are so great. I think you can save me. In spite of my sin, I think you can forgive me. And so you throw yourself on the mercy of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we come with childlike faith. No transaction, no bargaining, no manipulation, just simple faith in the real God, who is the God of grace. Now that's how conversion works, and I think most of us know that, and if you don't, this is how conversion works. But when we get converted by grace, and then we start praying as Christians, we start praying like pagans. 
we forget that this is how our relationship with God works, that it is by grace, that it is a family-like relationship. Childlike faith is quickly replaced with grown-up sophistication, manipulation, and pretension. Listen to Paul Miller. He says, We know we don't need to clean up our act in order to become Christian, but when it comes to praying, we forget that. We, like adults, try to fix ourselves up. In contrast, Jesus wants us to come to him like little children, just as we are. See, the same thing, the way it works at conversion is the way it works in prayer for the rest of your relationship with God. Miller goes on, he says, don't try to do the prayer thing right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. They come as they are, runny noses and all. I love that. Like the, like the disciples, they just say what is on their minds. That's the image of prayer that Jesus gives us. He says, your father already knows what you need before you get to ask him. And so you come to him, not pretending that you're better off, that you really do understand your situation and this is the best plan to pursue here. No, you just run to him with your runny nose and you complain and you talk to him what's on your heart and he helps you because he loves you. True Christian prayer, based on God's revelation of himself as our Father and as a God of, of grace, is really a conversation springing from a rich relationship of love and trust. Does this describe your prayer life? I think we're all recovering pagans. And we're all dealing with these false notions of who God is. We're all dealing with false patterns of building a relationship with Him. And it takes time to undo it. But my encouragement to us this morning is, undo it. Work to rebuild. Work to align your prayer life with who God really is, with who the real God is. It will happen, and it will change your life. It will change your prayer life. You're not going to pray like a pagan anymore if you see God for who He is. You can't. Now, I'll give you an example of that. As many of you know, our, our youngest daughter is adopted. She was adopted when she was two and a half years old. She was in the orphanage for that first years of her life, mainly dealing with caregivers who would come and go. We're not sure the level of care that she really received. But that was her experience of dealing with other people. Now, she's nonverbal, and it's very hard for us to sometimes know what she means or what's going on in, in her mind. But we've noticed early on, and actually it lasted for several years when she came into our family, she came into our house, that she would get very anxious around mealtimes. It was one of those things where if we were just a little bit late with dinner, she would just completely fall apart at first. And, and we would, would notice that we would say, like, it's, it's as if she doesn't trust us to feed her. It's as if she's not sure that food is going to come. And then we thought about it, we thought, of, well, of course, why would she? Why would she trust us? As far as she knows, we're just this family that showed up and took her from the orphanage. And now she's with us, but she doesn't know us. She doesn't know if she can trust us. And she is still relating to us as she did to her caregivers. We're just another set of caregivers. And they, maybe they can't be trusted. 
And so it took her a long time to transition from just not expecting anything, not trusting us, being anxious around mealtimes, to finally expecting that food will come, that we will care for her, that we will provide for her, that it's constant, that it's faithful, that it's going to be there, that she can count on that. But it took years for her to get there. Now, she still gets, as they say, hangry around dinner time. But this is very different from what it was at first. And I wonder how much of that is true of us Christians, that we start out as pagans. We start out thinking, I don't know if I can trust him. Maybe if I can throw a tantrum, food will come quicker. Maybe if I just manipulate God in this way. Maybe if I pray long. Maybe if I pray hard. Maybe if I use these special words. Maybe if I discover the secret power of prayer they keep talking about, then maybe God will feed me. But Jesus says this is not who God is like. The problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. We have this false understanding of God as a caregiver, but God is our Father. And if we start treating Him that way, if we start seeing Him that way, our prayers change. Now I want to finish by this. I've outlined these two approaches to prayer, and I hope one is more appealing to you than the other. I do hope that, that when you hear me talk about God as Father, that that is more attractive to you than you think that's how prayer should be. And even though I'm struggling with that, I want to be there. Now, the first approach is transactional. The pagan approach is transactional. It's based on making a deal. But the second is relational, and it's based on love. So maybe that appeals to us more. But if we decide to pursue the second approach, the right approach, the Christian approach, the one Jesus is teaching about, the question still remains, the question that Evie had for many years is, how can I trust God to respond, to answer my prayers, to help me? Now you're telling me this is how it works, and you're telling me this is the real God, this is who he is, but is it really? Does he really care? Does he really know? Does he really come to my help? And if he doesn't give me something I ask for, how can I be sure that he's not giving me something I ask for because he knows I don't need it? Or because he knows I need something else? Or because he knows I need to wait? How can I trust him in those moments of unanswered or delayed answer to prayer? How can I be sure that this God is not withholding something from me and while I think of him as this gracious father who's ready to give it to me, really, he's just waiting for me to pray better and longer and more fervently. Now, the definitive and final answer to all these questions is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ answers those questions. And whenever we wrestle with those questions, whenever you wrestle with unanswered prayer, whenever you wrestle with whether God can be trusted, whenever you wrestle with whether God really knows best what you need, you have to go to the cross of Christ. Because that will destroy your doubts about God. Now Galatians 4, 4 and 6 and 7, 4, 5, 6 and 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. Now God sent his son Jesus to die in our place to free us from this transactional experience of relationship with God. Jesus came to free us from seeing God as a slave master, which is a default pagan, pagan understanding of who God is. The cross of Christ is the basis of our adoption into God's family. And we used to be slaves. We used to be orphans. But when Jesus came, that changed something, and now we are part of God's family, and we can rightly call him Father. And because our place in God's family is secure, it's secure, it's been secured through the death of Christ himself, God now sends the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, to give us the experience of his love. And so a Christian always prays to the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. The Father's gift of Christ on the cross proves God's love to us. You see, he proves that he's on our side. He proves on the cross that he is committed to us that he not only knows our needs, but he is eager to fill our needs, to give to us whatever we need. One of the most precious passages in Scripture, and I hope you go back to this passage often, is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can you argue with this logic? The God who gave the most precious thing he had, his own son, sent him to die for us, followed up by giving us his spirit to constantly remind us that Jesus came and died and rose again. How can this God withhold something trivial? something that is not really that significant in the grand scheme of things. Why would this God be stingy with material blessings when he gave us something that is so incredible as his son dying on the cross? Why would this God not give us something we need, what he knows we need, which we're often wrong about? But how can this God withhold anything we legitimately need if he already gave us his son? This is the logic of the gospel. And all those questions about trust and reliability of God, whether God really knows our needs and whether he's eager to, to give us what we need, all those questions are answered on the cross in the Father's gift of his Son for us. So are you trying to impress God with your prayers? He's not impressed by you. But he is impressed with Jesus, who died and rose for us, who who brought us into God's family. Are you trying to convince God to, to listen to your prayers? He is not convinced by your eloquence or repetition or the length of your prayers, but he is convinced by the Spirit crying from your heart, Abba, Father. That prayer he cannot ignore. Are you trying to get God's attention? You've got it. You've already got it. There's no need to ask for it. You have his full attention. And if you ever doubt it, think about the Father's gift 
on the cross of Christ. Jesus said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him.